Well, good morning. It's a little different view from here this time of day, this week. It's so good to be up here. And normally, if you've been here before, I'm the worship pastor. Thank you to the worship team that led this morning. Michael, all of you guys, thank you all so much for leading. It's so good to be with you. Pastor, thank you for the opportunity um, to get to bring this morning's message. I think, I think, because this is a hard passage. I took one of the hard ones here, but that's okay. We're in this series, as you can see, called The Issachar Factor. And today, I'm really excited about the subject that this actually brings us to today, because it's the subject of families. Now, when you think about family, we all, I think, just naturally think about the TV families that we grew up with, right? So some of the oldest among us, you might remember these guys, Ozzie and Harriet. I only know about them because people talk about Ozzie and Harriet. I don't think I've ever even maybe watched one, but I just know that they were the ideal 1950s couple, post-World War II, the family's all intact and everybody's good and, and life is good. And then we move along to the 70s, and we have a little progression, right? We've got a blended family here. We've got his kids and her kids coming together, and that's kind of tracking with the American family, right? And that's, that's how our progression goes. And then we hit the 80s. How many of y'all remember the first episode of The Cosby Show? I remember I went to a friend's house down the street in the neighborhood. His mom was literally in tears during the show because for the first time, there was a family that looked like their family. And they said, wow, this is amazing. Here in America, we've finally gotten to that place where we've got a black family that we can all relate to as well. The Cosby Show, great show for me. Growing up, just a little bit after that came this family. And I, come on, y'all, we all miss Bob Saget. And what a loss we had a couple of weeks ago in his loss. But this family, though, and even beyond just what they did on TV, we kind of tracked their lives, right? And then we had, for the millennials in the bunch, Malcolm in the middle. Okay, I didn't quite know that one as much, but some of y'all did. And we can fill in the gaps. There's a lot of other families that we think of. But when we talk about marriage, we naturally talk about family. And we naturally think about some families. And so today, what I want us to do is think about family and marriage. But I need to say this with a disclaimer. Some here grew up in single-parent families. Some here grew up as an orphan, and you went from one family to another. Some of you are single. Some of you have gone through divorce. I know that what we're dealing with here, when he's talking about husbands and wives, where we're going to be going in 1 Peter, is going to maybe feel like it doesn't relate to everybody. But I want to start off by just saying, even those of you who are the youngest in the room, you're not even thinking about marriage yet. That's okay. We're going to be talking about a principle here that is for all believers in Jesus. All right? So today, we're diving into the next sermon in a series we've called The Issachar Factor. What the heck is that all about? If you're joining us for the first time, and we're glad to have you, by the way. I see there's some guests here today. So glad to have you join us. If you're joining us for the first time, what this is all about is in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. They're describing the fighting men, the mighty men of King David, the greatest king in all of Israel. And among his mighty men were these sons of Issachar. They were men who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. They understood the times. They took the temperature of the place they lived. They understood and knew from that what Israel should do. And the king looked to them and asked them, where should we go? What should we do? That is what we want to be. Men and women who understand the times. 
And so the way that we're doing this is we're looking at the book of 1 Peter. So if you've got a Bible with you, if you'll turn to 1 Peter, we're going to be in chapter 3 today, verses 1 through 7, looking at marriage and husbands and wives. But we're going to be doing this in the context of this seeking God's wisdom for the times. What does God have to say about marriage? What does God have to say about husbands and wives and how we relate to each other? What can we learn from God's word? So let's pray and seek him before we get into this. God, we thank you so much that you are the God who sees and knows all things and all wisdom and knowledge comes from you. And so, Father, we just seek your wisdom. We seek your knowledge and your understanding. And God, even as we dig into your word, Lord, I just pray the words that have been sung over us, God, already, that you would bring the things to pass that you would have. Your promises are true, God, we trust them. And so, Father, right now, even as we dig into your word, I pray for any who bring hurt when it comes to speaking about marriage and relationships and family, that you would just make this a warm place for them just to hear your word and find healing. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. And all God's people said together, amen, amen. Man, it's good to just be out here and worship with you guys and to hear the voices of singing and just hearing you all say amen back to me. God's people are together and it's good. It's a good thing. So as we go into this sermon, what I want to start with is this idea that marriage and families are under attack today in our society. Would you agree with me on that? Are marriages and family under attack? I mean, really, it is a hard place to be, to be a husband and wife, or to be a kid in a family right now that's a, a normal family. In fact, some people just kind of look at it this way. You know, you get to the, in front of the, the pastor, the priest, I now pronounce you husband and wife. You may now update your Facebook status, because that's really what it's all about. It's like, hey, what does it look like? You know, let's get it out there and let people know this is what we're doing, this is who we are. That's not what marriage is at all. But you know, this isn't a new problem. In fact, 250 years ago, when our country was being founded, the writers William Godwin, Percy Bysshe Shelley, and William Blake, you remember those guys? You've read about them in literature maybe? They proposed at their time, back in the late 1700s, early 1800s, the dissolution of the traditional idea of marriage as a lifelong monogamous chase bond. Marriage was simply one aspect of the way society unnaturally restricted human desire and force people to live inauthentic lives. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar to you? Have you heard that kind of language before? That 250 years ago was stuff that was being written by writers and philosophers and society didn't see it that way at all. But 250 years later, it's pretty much kind of become how people look in, in, in our culture. And I, I'm gonna dig in a little bit into American culture, but really this is the world that we live in. It really is, and certainly Western culture that we, we look at marriage as this box that it puts you in, you know? And, and when, when, are we gonna, when are we gonna take that step to, to get ourselves chained to somebody and where they wanna go and what they wanna do, right? I mean, that's kind of how we look at it. It's not a new thing. Marriage and families are under attack in our society. So what are we gonna do about it? What, what do we say about this? Well, we need to take a little bit bigger picture view. And so as we've dug into this series. Our pastor has started with a couple of sermons already, three sermons, in fact, that have brought us to this place that have sort of framed things up in the context in First Peter of holiness. And we heard a couple of weeks ago about how we live as Christians counter to a pagan culture, a culture that's not a Christian culture. We find ourselves at odds at times, 
kind of like we're talking about right here with marriage. Well, the whole context of that is holiness. God calls us to actually be set apart, to be like he is, like the example of Jesus, to be holy. And so my college roommate posts every, every year, he's, he's posts the books that he's read the past year. And so he put this post up on uh, social media this year on Instagram, and, and uh, right there in the middle of the books that he read, he's a pastor, okay, so pastors read a lot of books, but this book called Rediscovering Holiness by J.I. Packer, and he said, this was the one that really stuck with me. Well, I went, okay, if that stuck with him, it's got to be some deep reading, but I'm going to dig into that. Let me, let me see what this is all about, and God knew what he was doing. I didn't know that we were going to be doing a series on holiness coming up, but God knew what he was doing. So I dug into that book, and then I read a little further. There's this great book by Jerry Bridges, The Pursuit of Holiness. And in this book, he says these words, we are more concerned about our own victory over sin than we are about the fact that our sins grieve the heart of God. Think about that. We cannot tolerate failure in our daily struggle with our sin chiefly because we are success-oriented right? I want to be my best person. I want to live my best life. Let me be a success. But not because it is offensive. Our sin is offensive to a holy God. Think about that. Just think about why it is that we want to be, for example, we've sung about, I'm free forever. Amen. Why, why do we want this? For, is, it, is it because I want to be free? Is it because I, I want to feel this sense of freedom in me? Or is it because God is holy and he has freed me and liberated me to his glory? It's all about him. So as we dig into this passage here, I want us to be mindful of the fact that we're talking about marriage that is holy. It's different. It's set apart. All right? And we're going to talk about the best kind of love. The best kind of love. So if you take your Bibles, we're in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And the big idea today is this. The best kind of love looks like Jesus. Can you say that with me? The best kind of love looks like Jesus. I want you to stick that in your mind, and you're going to see that over and over and over again as we read this passage. It looks like Jesus. But even before we get into this passage, we're going to see Jesus. Watch this. Turn back if you've got a Bible. We're going to look to chapter 2, and I'll explain why we're going here, but we've got to set up the context a little bit. He says this, Peter says this, if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. When they hurled their insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Okay, that's the picture that we see of Jesus. It's the one who suffered, and when he suffered, he willingly went. He did not retaliate. He didn't push back. He could have. He was God incarnate. He could have moved the whole sky and destroyed everybody and cleared the deck, but he didn't humbly. He went to the cross. He entrusted himself, this is key, he entrusted himself to his father. He yielded his will to the will of the father. As fully God, he gave his father command. That is the best kind of love. 
It looks like Jesus. So now we go to verse 1. So wives, in this same way, submit yourselves. How many of you, when you've read that before, you've gone, oh, no, 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 no. What is he saying here? We got a problem with this text here. Ladies, I know, okay, it's okay. It is okay. You look at that and you go, come on, really? Did he mean that? I mean, you know, modern day theologians nowadays, we walk around that, we work our way through it, and you know, this isn't really saying that, right? But when you put it in this context, in this same way, like Jesus, submit yourselves to your husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over. Without the words, by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. So the first thing that we see here today is a call to wives. Biblical submission is your source of strength. Biblical submission is actually your source of strength. And don't we see this all the time in the Bible where things are upside down? You look at something on this level and, and, and it's actually just the opposite of that. I mean, it's, it's all over Scripture. Well, this is one of those examples. Listen to this. He says that they may be won over, the husbands may be won over. What is he saying there? That word there in the Greek, kardano, indicates power and possession. It's a strong word. There are a lot of strong words, by the way, in this text, in the original language. A lot of power going on, a lot of power struggle. Anybody in marriage, anybody married here who would say there's a little bit of power struggle that happens in marriage? Come on, come on. Talk to me here. You know that, right? It is real. It's real. There's a reason this is, I saw those hands. (laughs) But it's power struggle. But wives, in the same way that you submit as Christ did, You will win your husband over to Christ. You will have power over him with that submissive spirit, with purity and reverence. That's that's a different kind of picture than we see, right? I mean, really, that, that looks completely different than what we see in just our culture. But what we see here in Scripture, there's a bigger picture. And we can't ever just isolate single passages. There's going to be a few that we find in here that have been isolated and and all kinds of different teachings and theologies have come out of this. And what I want us to see is the big picture. So stepping back, Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 5. This is a great passage that deals with submission. And he starts with this. Submit you, the church, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, all of us. This applies to everybody, not just men and women married, just not just married people, husbands and wives, but all of us submit to one another as Christians, as believers, out of reverence for Christ. That's the foundation. And then he says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. There's a structure that we see here Christ yielded his will to the Father. Christ is over the church. He's not going like this, beating us down, but he's the head of the church, and in the same way, the structure spiritually in the family, he says, is like this. 
And so now as the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, you love your wives as Christ loved the church. This goes both ways. How did Christ love the church? He gave himself up. So wait, a man comes in and says, look, woman, I'm in charge here. Uh, No, because Christ loved the church and gave himself up. You give up yourself. This is both of us coming together and saying, I submit my will and my authority. The best kind of love, say it with me, looks like Jesus. It's the picture of Jesus. Biblical submission looks like Jesus. Now, last week, I asked my wife, Juliet, about this. And I said, babe, tell me, how does this fall for you? Like, what, what does this look like in our marriage? When, when have you felt this kind of bristle and, and be hard for us? She said, Rob, she took me back to this time when we had a big decision. And we were living in New Orleans. I was serving as the worship pastor in my home church, the church I had grown up in. God had called me to be there. We had been there for almost seven years. We had great people with us. Alan and Judy were part of that church. We had the best time. I had my parents in my choir. I had a high school friend in my choir. We were just, it was a good time. My dad and I went to Saints games after church. We went to Tigers games. Like, we were living it up. It was good. And then this church I had served in in Phoenix calls me hey, we've got a new pastor and we want to talk to you about being our worship pastor. And I was like, no. I mean, right off the bat, no, 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 no. God, you're not doing that. Don't mess this whole thing up. But God just kept working and kept working and kept working. And I'm going, God, what are you doing? And so we're praying about it, talking about it. And ultimately, God just led my heart in a way that can only come from him because I wouldn't have left. I mean, I laughed about it the first time. Kind of like Abraham and Sarah, you know, you're going to have a son, you're 100 years old, you laugh. I was like, no. But when God calls, we follow. But Juliet, she said, oh, no. Family dinner night every Tuesday night with your family and all the grandkids are together and all this. No way. We can't give this up. Are you kidding? Are you crazy? No, we can't do that. But she said, if God's calling you, if God's calling you, then I'm trusting you. And I'm trusting his call on your life. And even though I don't want to do this, I'm trusting this is what God's calling us to do. And that was a hard place for her to be. And uh, it's been, it was, a, it was a hard, hard journey. Those next three years were not easy years. But God called us to that. And he called us to that to call us to this, <laughs> to be here at Dunwoody Baptist Church. And I'm so grateful for that. I'm so thankful. God did a great thing there. But in the process, he taught me something about what it means as the the head of the family, spiritually, listening to God, but understanding too, certainly listening to Juliet. As she listened to me, we have learned so much more about what it means mutually to learn from one another, to love one another. That's the picture that I have in my mind of what it means, biblical submission. So this call to wives, biblical submission, is actually your source of strength. God will use that as he used Juliet to speak to me, to help strengthen our marriage, to make her stronger. That's God's plan. The second thing that we see 
is that the inside is greater than the outside. And again, this is a principle that we see all throughout Scripture. If you've heard the story of King David when he was selected to be king, you know, he was just a boy. He was ruddy. You know, all of his brothers, they were all way better than him. And remember Saul before him? Saul had all these brothers. They were way more handsome, but God selected him. But with David, God said, man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. That principle going all the way back to there, we see right here. He says in verse 3, your adornment, and I'm in the New American Standard. If you're reading an NIV, I like the way this looks. So the way it reads is a little closer to the, the uh, original text. Your adornment must not be merely external. It's not just external, braiding the hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. I like the way the NIV says this, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. That is the inner beauty. Now, this is one of those verses that sometimes we can get hung up on, okay? That first verse that we saw there, people get hung up on not wearing jewelry. That's why I said this particular translation says, don't let it just be external. That's how we need to see that. That's a little bit closer to the way it's written. It's not, there are some who would say, oh, we're not going to wear jewelry anymore. We don't braid our hair. No, it's just don't let that be what you're all about, ladies, wives. Don't let it be the outside, but the inner person. And guys, I think we can learn something from this too, by the way. I don't think this is just speaking to wives here. I think all of us need to understand this principle. But in marriage, in marriage, what he's saying here is, wives, let that beauty come from within. And it will radiate out. How many of you, you think of somebody that you know that you've talked about, oh, she's beautiful. And you're not even thinking about the outside because her spirit, her character. If you've been in this church for any amount of time, there are women in this church that I think of that I just think, she's beautiful. Now, she is beautiful on the outside as well, but really it's the inner beauty that you're seeing. That is the principle that we see here. Who does that remind you of in Scripture? If you go back to the Old Testament prophecies, they said this about Jesus. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. There's nothing. This is a prophetic word spoken about the Messiah that would come. And what we know about Jesus was it wasn't that he was handsome that drew the crowd at all. In fact, it was kind of the opposite from what they say, that he really was not good looking, as this says. But it points us back to the fact that biblical submission looks like Jesus. The best kind of love looks like Jesus. So everything we're seeing here keeps pointing us back to that. So when we say that beauty on the inside is far greater than beauty on the outside, it's a picture of Jesus. So remember that, ladies, women, wives, beauty on the inside. Next thing that we see is that godly marriage sets the example for future generations. Godly marriage sets the example, sets the example for future generations. As we look around the room here, I look around and I see generations of people and I look at godly examples. Look at this text. He says this, for this is the way, starting in verse five, 
the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. They submitted themselves to their own husbands. Like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her master, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Now, I told you, there's a lot of verses here that we get hung up on, right? This passage is full of them. So right here, so wait, are we supposed to call our husbands Lord? Is that what he's saying here? No, that's not what he's saying here. What he's pointing to is the character of Sarah. In her time, it was a very different time. Wives were treated a lot more like property. Unfortunately, that's how it was in the ancient Near East. She understood Abraham's role. She went so far as to follow Abraham two different lands, one of them being Egypt, where literally he passed her off as his sister so they wouldn't kill him for her because she was beautiful. And she submitted to that. What kind of submission is that? I mean, that's, that's what Peter's pointing to here. It's the kind of submission that says, I trust. I trust you, and I trust you following God. Understand, though, that we're talking about a man of God, a, a husband who is worthy. Husbands, we're going to get to that in just a minute. But when that husband lives in that way, a woman, a wife, can submit. So do not give way to fear. Godly marriage sets the example for future generations. Now, I told you we can look around and see examples of that. I want you to think about this. If some of us didn't grow up in a traditional family, some of us here grew up with a single parent, some are in that situation now, some are adopted or orphaned. Uh, I know that all of those listening to me, that not everybody came from a Ozzie and Harriet kind of family. And there are blended families here. There are a lot of great examples of different ways that we grew up. But even if you would say, you know, my parents were not that example, I bet there's a teacher, a coach, maybe a pastor and his wife, a couple that you know, that you look to, that you would say, that's the example. I want you to get that in your head. Just think about who that is. For me, when I think about that, I think of Bob and Billy Como, my parents. They have set that example for me. Um, my parents went through a really difficult time. They didn't come from the same faith background, by the way. My mom was raised Catholic. My dad's mother, uh, father was Catholic. Mom was Protestant. They, he went to kind of a Bible church, kind of came to know Jesus in his later teenage years, and they started going to this Bible church, and God brought them together, and, and they were figuring all this stuff out. And by the time I was about 12, 11, 12 years old, they lost everything. Both of them lost their jobs from a family business. Difficult, difficult times. I watched them praying together, seeking the face of God together in the hardest times of life. And God called them to start a business together. Now, how many of you know that husbands and wives should not start businesses together? Am I right? Amen, <laughs> right? You don't do that. Like family and business don't mix. They always say that, right? And yet they have found this amazing way to partner their gifts together. In fact, it's even the slogan of their business, all about price and all about design because my dad's the price guy, my mom's the design lady. Like they've built it into it and they've led this business for 25 years and just God's just blown things up. It's amazing, the testimony. And as they're now in their, uh, as they're, my dad's at an age of retirement, 
My mom is too, but she's not retiring yet. <laughs> My dad's enjoying it, but he's turned over the keys. She's the CEO of the business. And yet at the same time, even still, as I talked to her yesterday, she was telling me how, sure, I've got that title, but, but I still listen to your father on everything. We're together on these things. They have that in their relationship just built in. And it's a testimony to me. And so for all of us, I want you to think of that generational testimony. Maybe it's grandparents or great-grandparents. Again, if it's not in your own family, it's a family that you know of or you've heard. If you're in this church, there are lots of examples. And as I thought about that, there's this couple here. How many of you? Oh, I went back. Sorry. So how many of you all know these guys? <laughs> Man, I tell you what, blessing us so much in the way that they have just, I love how he speaks of her, just this beauty of their relationship and how much they just gush in their, get this, 75 years of marriage. Can we give them a hand? 75 years. And God has blessed them. And we are just so grateful that we have examples like that of marriage that lasts and I'm so, so thankful that in this church, we have people to look to and to be grateful for. But godly marriage sets the example for future generations. Godly marriage sets an example. So when we look at Abraham and Sarah, he was looking back 2,000 years from this time. We look back 2,000 years here. And we look around us and we see those examples. But then, husbands, it's your turn. Here's the challenge to the husbands as we get into the final verse, verse seven. He spent six verses talking to wives here, and he spends one verse, but he lowers the boom on you, husbands. Listen to this. Husbands, in the same way. You remember that phrase, in the same way? We saw that earlier. In the same way, referring back to Jesus, right? In the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way. Again, I'm using the New American Standard on this one because I like how it fits the original text a little bit better. Live with an understanding, as with someone weaker as she is a woman, and show her her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. And it seems like every single verse that I read here today, there's a hang-up. Am I right? Are y'all seeing that? Wait, where's the hang-up? Somebody pointed out. Here it is, as someone weaker. Whoa, what's going on here? What are we doing here? Okay, don't focus on that. Listen, if I took 10 men and 10 women up here and we put a tug of rope in between and we pulled, how much would the men win out of 10 times? Probably most of the time. We could, we could balance it out. There's some strong women that we could put in the mix. So I know that. Alyssa, you were in the army. I'm not messing with you, all right? Uh, but really though, in general, it's just talking physical strength here. Don't read into that. This is not talking about weakness in any other way whatsoever, just simply that. So don't read into that. What you need to see here is this. He says, husbands, live in an understanding way. The word here in the Greek is gnosin. We get our word knowledge from that word. Live with knowledge of your wife. Know your wife. And I know the wives that are here, they're saying to them, they're, they're just kind of nudging right here. They're going, yeah, do you get that? Like the flowers that you haven't brought in a while, that candy that I like, whatever that is. No, you know those things about each other, but it's not just the surface stuff. It's not just the flowers and the jewelry and the candy. It's knowing her 
at the most intimate level and meeting those needs. Live with her in that way, husbands, and show her honor. Show her honor. So husbands, know your wives and show her honor. You can show her honor in ways that no one else can. When you speak of her, people know that you know her better than anyone else does. And listen, even as I'm saying this, I know I've got people in the room here who are not married, and what I hope that you're hearing through all of this in the way that husbands treat their wives is we understand how we ought to treat one another as members of the body of Christ. Remember that foundation, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But right here, very specifically, husbands, know your wives, honor your wives. Honor them. Don't rule over them. Don't hold this over them. This, this picture that we have of Christ and the church, how he leads the church, there is nothing about the way that he is towards us that is heavy-handed. Submit to me, church. That is not ever ever anything that we see in the picture of Christ. And it should never, ever be who we are as husbands to our wives. Do you hear me there? We should never use those words. Don't take this passage and say, submit to me. The Bible says, submit to me. Oh, no, 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 no. You have misunderstood what Peter was saying here, what Paul said in Ephesians, what God is trying to teach us as an overarching principle this picture of marriage is one that we see. In Revelation, there's the marriage supper of the Lamb that is promised, right? We are the bride of Christ as the church. That language is throughout Scripture. It's a picture that we see here. It's a physical picture. And as we look around the room and we look at one another and married couples around the room stand testimony to the picture of the kind of love that God wants us to have that reflects Christ. Now, wives, I want to say one more thing to you in light of this passage here, because there's a little piece here just for you. And my friend Brenna Stoll says it really well. Juliet and I talking about this uh, last week. She said, you know, I love the way Brenna put it in her women's conferences. She's written books about being a mom, coach mom. She says, wives, pray for your husband, and then duck. Get out the way, because God is coming. You just pray. You pray for him. And is that not the principle that we've seen here? In your gentle humility, your purity, your beauty, seek the Lord. Submit to the plan that God has, and then get out of the way. Because what do we see here at the end of this passage? Look at this. Husbands, you show her honor. You live in an understanding way so that your prayers will not be hindered. Wives didn't get a word like that. There was nothing about that in the first six verses. But husbands, listen, if you don't get this right, there's a gap here between you and God. He's not gonna hear your prayers. It's gonna get in the way of your relationship with God. You, as the head of the household, have a responsibility spiritually for your family. That's what we see here. And so, if you don't honor your wife and love her in the way that he's called you to do, it will hinder your prayers. So wives, pray for your husbands and then get out the way. Just duck. 
and let God do the work that God does. Because it says in Proverbs chapter three, it says that God disciplines those he loves just as a father disciplines the son that he delights in. That's the way that God treats our relationship with him. He disciplines us when he needs to. So husbands, know this. If you get out of line with this, God will discipline you. So this all brings us back to the big picture here. The best kind of love, can you say it with me one more time? Looks like Jesus. Jesus. 